Right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to shift gears here in my heat. Once again, if you're joining us um, a little later this morning, uh, it's probably better. We were up here till about 8 last night. We thought we got the air conditioners fixed, but to no avail when I got here early this morning. So bear with us, um, and we have Kona ice to come. So that is, uh, that is a good and welcomed reprieve in a bit. Well, this morning on Father's Day, I found a wonderful quote from Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer, as you know, um, is the head coach of Ohio State football. And on one occasion, he was meeting with a group of high school football coaches, and both probably imparting wisdom and spurring them on. And as he did, um, he said the following. He said, you don't win or lose football games with schemes. Schemes never work. In some cases, I can show you schemes that coaches use and they win, and another coach can use the very same scheme and they lose. You don't win or lose football games on schemes. You win or lose in football with players and culture. Now, we understand the players part. You have to have talented and skilled um, young men to play their positions. They've, they've got to be conditioned and trained. They've got to understand the natures of their, their particular place on the field and be uh, aware of that. That makes sense. But what about culture? Culture is a bit of a nebulous term, isn't it? I love this uh, definition. It actually comes and brings it into the Christian context by a seminary professor and author who noted that culture is a human attempt to understand the world around us. It goes on to say, it's the programming that shapes who we are and who we're becoming. It's a social system that is shaped by the individual and that also has the capacity to shape the individual. But in a Christian context, it goes on to say, but it is also the presence of God, the image of God, the mission of God in the human spirit, soul, and social system. So I'd like to talk about that idea of culture. What does it look like to create culture, and appropriately so, on Father's Day? Because dads, we know that we create the culture for our families and for our moms, for those who aren't married, uh, for those who don't have kids, we have the ability to create culture for those around us, or the culture that's intentionally created out in the world will then shape and form us. So we have to spend some careful thought thinking about the culture we're creating. And so the question before us this morning is, what culture are we creating? Or what culture perhaps is creating us? And I raised that this morning um, looking in Exodus uh, with Moses, because Moses really stands as a father figure, as you know, for all of Israel. Um, he is a leader for Israel. Um, but in many ways, Moses helps set the culture for Israel at a time that is quite pivotal. And so I'd like for us to look at Exodus 19 and three stops along the way uh, for a model that Moses gives us about setting culture. So if we look at verse 1, we're given a time stamp right off the bat. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Fifty days after they had been delivered from Israel, I mean from Egypt, excuse me, the people of Israel 
come to the wilderness of Sinai. We know that there, if we flip the page in your Bible, one, one page over, or it may be on the same page depending on how it lines up, um, you would notice that in chapter 20, that's where Moses is given the law by God. We get the Ten Commandments recorded Bible trivia the first of two times, right? It's both in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Um, and there we discover that that sets the culture for Israel. But before they get there, before they get to that moment, they're in this transition. They're in this wilderness journey. They're in this place where they've been delivered from where they are, but they've not yet arrived to where they will be in the promised land. So a lot of what Moses is doing in this wilderness, this transitional period, is helping instruct and set, set the culture for the nation of Israel so they know how to relate to God. And as they enter into this place, the kind of the stepping of their feet on to this wilderness area, they come into the wilderness of Sinai, they encamp there, and they encamp before the mountain, before Mount Sinai, and we read in verse 3 that Moses goes up to meet with God. Now, this is the first time the people of Israel have set foot here. But as you know from your knowledge of Scripture, this is not the first time Moses' feet have tread here. Right? In Exodus 3, jog your memory very, very, very quickly. Um, remember Moses, his name means drawn out of the water, born in Egypt, raised in the house of Pharaoh. Um, as he comes of age, goes out, sees the taskmasters treating the Israelites unfairly, strikes down a taskmaster, um, then mediates some time later between two Israelites, and they say, are you going to do to us what you did to that taskmaster? He feared for his life. Moses fled to this place, the wilderness of Sinai, and really life was good. He got married. He had flocks. You know, he was having a great time until in this very place before Mount Sinai, God shows up to him in the form of that burning bush, right? And speaks to him and says, you're going back to Egypt and you're going to be my mouthpiece to bring them out from that place. But the promise in Exodus 3, as you might recall, was God said, and when they come out from that place, they will worship me on this mountain. And so the reason I think that's helpful for us to note is in these opening three verses, um, in many ways, we see there's a bit of an urgency and eagerness, if you will, uh, on the part of Moses. Um, as they enter into this land, as they come into the wilderness, we note that it's on that very same day, as they're setting up camp in verse 2, before everybody's getting settled, Moses is ready to go up to the mountain and meet with God. There's this beautiful image that Moses is eager to be with God, and he's eager to show the people of Israel what that looks like. And I think that's important and maybe a first um, stop for us about setting culture, one of eagerness. So I guess the question when we think about what culture are we setting or what culture is setting us, um, the way that we mitigate against that and our relationship with the Lord and the thing that we should ask ourselves is, do we with such eagerness, as Moses demonstrates, desire to be with God. So, dads, on Father's Day, do we with such eagerness model to our families an eagerness to be with God? And not just 
dads, everyone's on the hook if we follow Jesus, right? Um, Do we with such eagerness desire to meet with God, both in prayer and in the pages of Scripture, um, in our priorities? And what do our priorities point to? What does your calendar say about your eagerness to meet with God? What does your pocketbook say? What do the apps on your phone say? What does your nightstand and what's piled there say about our eagerness to meet with God? It's a question we must wrestle down because either we're passively unaware of it um, or we're actively engaged in this eagerness to be with God. And so we see first this eagerness. But then next, if we turn back to the text in verse 4, This is a whole sermon under itself, so I'm just going to flag it. Uh, We won't go into a whole other sermon, I promise. Um, But Moses goes up to meet with God, and notice Moses doesn't say a word. God speaks, Moses listens. It's beautiful. Moses goes up to meet with God. In his eagerness, he wants to be in the presence of God, and there in his silence before God, God instructs him. And in that moment, We see this instruction. First, God says, you're going to tell the house of Israel these things. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, in verse 4. Remember my mighty hand and my outstretched arm. But also remember, I wasn't just your deliverer, but I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I cared for you. I nurtured you up to this point. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you're to speak to the people of Israel. So in their culture, they understand, even in a pagan context, God gives them an image they get, right? Um, They understand what priests look like, even in pagan society. They're set apart for a very specific purpose that of usually performing some sort of sacrifice or worship on behalf of these things. So the Israelites, even in ancient Near East, knew what that looked like. Um, And God is saying to them, enter into this relationship with me and this covenant with me, and as you do so, your whole nation will be like that, set apart among all the peoples, so that, as Isaiah and others will say later, that as you're set apart, Israel, for all the nations, you might be a light to the nations so they might know the one true God. Now, lest we think this is Old Covenant, um, very intentionally, Peter pulls this forward for us, recognizing in the exact same language that no longer is Moses the mediary between God and his people. Jesus is. And as such, all who are in the New Covenant through Christ Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, are likewise called in 1 Peter chapter 2, this very same language, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a priest in a possession, set apart for God. And then in verse 12, for that reason, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among everyone else, honorable, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation, on the day of judgment, right? So there's a high bar that's set. So what does this say for us about setting culture? Well, it's not just our eagerness, but the way in which we live then points that out to others. Do we enter into relationship with God um, and continue to model that relationship with God 
before our families, before those around us. We're in a covenant relationship with God as God's people through the waters of baptism. Um, You are part of that new covenant. And as such, it's both our eagerness to be with God, but then we also show what that relationship covenant looks like that we've entered into in the ways that we live. To be a royal priesthood set apart means that we lead life differently than the world around us. So what does that mean? Um, That means that uh, the the ways in which we model things, certainly for our families, but for others around us, are going to look different than the world around us. Christians must be distinct. So with our kids, right, um, it comes home, so-and-so watches this or that, um, or reads this or that, um, so it must be okay. Well, no, girls, it's not. We, we, we believe different things, and we're going to watch different things, and we're going to do different things. And so we're, we're teaching them that they're going to look different than the world around them, and that's going to be not always easy, and that's why the church, the body of Christ, becomes that group so that we're this kind of countercultural group, right, that does, says, and acts and behaves differently than the world. And so it's a wonderful thing to dwell on that um, we're called to be set apart towards that end. So we have to ask ourselves, do we look distinctive from the world around us um, in the ways that we speak and the ways that we behave? We're not always going to get it right. I didn't get it right in the past 72 hours with power failures and air conditionings out and nine and 10 hour days. But we taught the girls, well, we're going to pray about that. And we're going to ask for God to do these things, right? Um, and, and it's not always lovely, but it's in the messiness that they see, okay, there's a relationship there, and we're going to work that out. Um, and so what culture are we setting for those around us? Be they our kids, our classroom, our peers, our neighbors, what does that look like? Do we model that we enter into relationship with God deeply toward that end? So the first two things are really about us. The last one is about them those who don't yet have that covenant relationship, which is back in verse 7 as we wrap up here, 7 and 8. So Moses comes down from the mountain, and he calls the elders of the people before them, and he tells them all the Lord's commanded. And the people answer together with one voice, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then the Lord um, received these words from Moses, right? We, we see in the old covenant, right, there's a mediary between God and his people. That's broken down, as we know, uh, in the new covenant with Christ Jesus. Um, and then we drop off in verse 9, but where it ends is, the Lord says to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you and may also believe you forever. And sadly, when they hear in the thick cloud, we know that they don't want to hear God speak and they just want Moses to tell them what God says because it's terrifying. Um, And then we get the Ten Commandments that follows on the heels of that, right? So the point is this. The point is this. The first part of this is about us. It's about our eagerness to be in God's midst. It's about modeling what entering into covenant relationship or just relationship with the Lord through Christ Jesus looks like. But all of that is pointed toward helping others embrace the same. So this is beautiful, right? Just as we made a choice to embrace God in our lives, we then, through our eagerness, through the model we set, then help others accept that invitation. And that's a pretty high thing to think about. Um, Moses doesn't always get it right. There's some grand consequences when he acts out um, in, uh, in, in disobedience and in his frustration. Um, 
So it doesn't mean that you have to be the perfect shining example, but we should have the weight, the weight of who we are and our identity in Christ so that we know that what we do, what we say, how we act should be an open invitation for others to come and embrace the same. So what culture are we setting? Are we, through our words and our actions, leading life in a way that invites others to say, I want what they have, or would they know? And so we have to ask ourselves those questions, and we have to think about that you might be the only Jesus someone sees, and if that's the case, that puts a pretty uh, big weight on us. But the good news is, it's not on you. It's the Holy Spirit who resides in you, who um, enables you to say the things that we need to say, that forgives us when we, you know, uh, misstep, um, and that enables us to be about the things he's called us to do. And so it's a wonderful thing to reflect upon as we think about culture. What culture are we setting? And what culture are we letting set us? Is it through the pages of Scripture, through our eagerness to be in God's presence, through entering into day in and day out relationship with Him? And will that stand as an example to everyone we engage around us so that they might come to embrace the same? Those are some things for us to reflect on and things that we continually in worship bring ourselves in the midst of so that by God's grace, as we grow more fully into the likeness of Jesus, whether our conversations are around the, the living room or the Zoom room or wherever we are in between, that we might set that example to others. So may God grant us such grace to ask ourselves, what culture are we setting? And to point others to come to find the relationship that we have found through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.